1976, Bruce Jenner won a gold medal while setting a world record in the decathlon at the Montreal Summer Olympics. Nearly 30 years later, in 2015, he was interviewed on television after undergoing a series of surgeries and hormone therapies, and he told the world in that interview, quote, for all intents and purposes, I'm a woman. He went on to say that he could no longer pull the curtain on his true identity. And so he said, I'm going to begin to live as a woman. And he has done so since that day, saying, this is my true identity. Well, until the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders reclassified it in 2013, what Bruce Jenner has experienced was called gender identity disorder. But now the medical community calls it gender dysphoria, removing any suggestion that there might be something wrong or disordered about a man thinking himself to be and seeking to live as a woman or a woman thinking herself to be a man. Today, such transgenderism has been mainstreamed and people are encouraged to live out their true identity as they choose. To choose their identity without being limited or constricted to that binary idea that a person is either a man or a woman because that's the way that God designed them to be. The fact that Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says that God created Adam and Eve as male and female now seems quaint at best or oppressive at worst. Progressive thinkers want everyone to believe that you can choose whatever gender you decide best represents your true identity. And the last time I checked, there were 112 such genders to choose from, including, including amber gender, gender fluid, and mirror gender, which is a gender that determines what it is based upon the people that it is around. The idea that you can decide for yourself your own identity is current and popular and is driving this whole movement. Your identity is whatever you say that it is. And of course, that's a lie. If you're familiar with the Bible and you believe the Bible, you know immediately that that simply is not true. God created the human race. God created mankind. He made the human race to be comprised of male and female. And furthermore, the God who created the whole world created you and assigned you to be either male or female. When a man tries to identify as a woman or a woman as a man, we cannot celebrate that. We cannot encourage that. Our hearts should go out to people like that. Why? Because such people are actually not living in reality. They're confused. They're deceived. If we love them, 
then we'll do our best, whatever opportunity we have, to try to help them understand this, to come to the truth so that they might experience the freedom and the joy that comes from living the way that God actually created them and calls them to be. There's never been a day when it has been more important to rightly understand your identity. And that's true not only for you sexually and your sexual identity, it's true for you personally and spiritually as well. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing more important for you than to understand that basic to, most significant for your self-understanding is the fact that you are in union with Jesus Christ. God has called you to himself and he has united you to his son, the Lord Jesus. We cannot live the life that God calls us to live as Christians if we do not recognize what he has made us to be. If we do not think rightly what it means to consider the fact that he has united us to Christ. In other words, as Christians, we must understand what is true of us if we're going to successfully fulfill what is required of us. What God has called us to do grows out of what God has created us to be. When God saves a person, he does so by his grace. It is out of his love, his mercy, his sovereign power that he justifies ungodly people. And he transforms them by this gospel of Jesus. He makes us new creations, uniting us to Christ through faith. He establishes his kingdom in our hearts and minds. That is, he sets up his rule in our lives as our greatest authority. And he calls us to a life of holiness, a life of joyful obedience to his commandments. His commandments are rooted in his grace. And our duty is rooted in our identity. And our responsibility is rooted in reality. Now, I tried to make this point last week when in our study of the opening verses of Romans 6, I argued that indicatives always precede imperatives in the Christian life. Indicative statements are those that declare what is true. They are statements of fact. They are statements of reality. Imperative statements are commands. They tell us our duty. And in the Bible, God's commands, our duty, are always based on his provision, which is our reality. So if you'll keep this in mind, when you read the Bible, you'll begin to see it everywhere, and it will prevent you from thinking wrongly about the Christian life. You'll be delivered from any temptation of saying, well, you know, what Christianity is, is just do this, don't do that. It's rules, it's laws, it's nothing but obligations. To think rightly about these things will help you to embrace with joy, with zeal, your calling to be a follower of Jesus. Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 6 shows us how all of this works. In this chapter, he labors to show us the fact that God justifies sinners by grace alone. And the fact that God justifies sinners by grace alone indeed does not or cannot lead justified people to go on living in sin. In other words, 
being justified by God's grace doesn't mean that the person who is saved by grace can then give himself to a life of rebellion to God's commandments because after all, we're saved by grace, not works. So he sets up his argument for this whole chapter in the opening verses, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He asks the question that he anticipates is going on in people's minds as they consider the fact, really, we're saved by grace alone? Grace alone? Doesn't matter if we sin, doesn't matter if we obey? So he says in verse 1 of Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, is his answer. (laughs) Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on in verse 3 and says that a Christian is a person who's been baptized into Christ Jesus. That is, he's been united to Christ. He is in Christ. And that truth, that reality of being in union with Christ changes everything because it changes the one who by faith actually is in Christ. Well, this morning what I want to do is just pick up where we left off last week, which brings us to verse 5 of Romans chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair in front of you, you'll find this passage beginning on page 942, 942. I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word in front of you so that you can actually see the words of God in His Bible. And as we work through them, you'll, you'll recognize that I'm not making this up. You'll be able to check what I have to say by what God Himself has actually revealed. Now, I want you to note what God does or what Paul does as he's inspired by the Spirit as we begin reading in verse 5. In verse 5, he restates the main point of his argument. He wants us to understand what it means to be united to Christ. Then in verses 6 and 7, he expounds the first part of verse 5, the negative part of what it means to be united to Christ. In verses 8 through 10, he then expounds the second part of verse 5, or the positive part. And he does this in order to establish firmly in our minds what it means to be a Christian what it means to be united to Jesus, to be in Christ, so that we can more accurately and more zealously pursue our responsibilities to live a righteous life. So hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 5 of Romans chapter 6. I want to read down through verse 14. We're not going to look at all those verses today. We'll stop at verse 10, but I want you to see, you'll, you'll see it, In the transition between 10 and 11, how Paul goes from the indicative to the imperative. So hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of Romans. Let me, no, I'll begin in verse 5 of Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then note the change in verse 11. 
So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of foreign righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Being united to Jesus Christ means that you are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. What Paul is doing in this part of his letter is proving why it is impossible for people who have been genuinely justified by God through grace alone to go on living in sin. Now, that is not to say that justified people, true Christians, never sin again or that they're completely free from sin or that they will not sin in grievous ways. Rather, a true Christian will not give himself up to sin complacently. Why? Because he has been united to God through Jesus Christ. He is in Christ and is joined to Christ in his life and in his death. At the end of verse 4, Paul says that our union with Christ means that we too might walk in newness of life. And in verses 5 through 10, he explains how this is possible because of what God has done in uniting us to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So let's look at those two considerations. What does it mean to be united to Christ in his death and to be united to Christ in his resurrection. Here's verse 5. This is the two parts of his argument summarized. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been united with Christ in his death. Now, Paul uses this language because he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who are trusting in Jesus Christ who did die who was raised from the dead. So they believe this. They are people that are staking their lives upon this, their eternal souls upon this. These are folks who have renounced the way they were living because they have come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Savior. And if you've not trusted Christ as Savior, as I have prayed, I want you to know, man, we're delighted you're here. We hope you'll continue to come. But we want you to know God. We want you to know Jesus. We really do want you to come to that place in your life where you just had this settled confidence in Christ as your Lord and entrust yourself to him. If you will trust him, he will save you. He will make you right with God. And you too will be in Christ. And everything Paul says in this chapter will begin to make sense to you in what God has done for you and is doing in you. In this verse 5, the first part of it, Paul teaches us that our union with Christ is intimate. He, he says, you're united with him. He, he uses an interesting verb there. It's the only time that it's used anywhere in the Bible. And it, and it means to be grown together, to be intertwined in a way that cannot be separated. Jesus uses this very analogy when he's talking to his disciples the night before he was betrayed and then executed. In John chapter 15, he said, I am the vine, 
you are the branches. We are in union with Christ. A Christian's union with Jesus is not make-believe. It's real. It's personal. It's intimate. Through faith, our lives are joined to Christ. We're in him so that we have been united with him in death. But our union with Christ is not physical. It's not mechanical. Rather, it is spiritual. Do you see how Paul uses very careful language here? He says, united with him in a death like his. So while there is intimacy and personal relationship with Christ in being grown together with him, there's not an exact identity with his death. In other words, his death is distinct from our own death. Likeness does not mean identical. Now, Paul is not talking about our, the Christian's physical death and resurrection. Rather, he's talking about the union that we have with Christ in death and resurrection, which is a spiritual union. How does that happen? It happens through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes inside of a person. He works in our minds. He works in our hearts, creating faith, strengthening faith. He is the one that brings us into union with Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was perhaps the greatest preacher of the 20th century, ministered in London, and he put it in a way that I found very helpful. Let me read to you his explanation of this. It means this, that what has happened to Christ, literally and actually, happens to us spiritually. There is a spiritual sense in which it is true to say that we died with him. We did not die with him literally, physically, We shall never know the agony that he knew in his death. But what is important is that because of our spiritual relationship with him, the effects, the consequences of his actual literal death becomes ours. They're passed on to us. This means that because we are in Christ, we get all of the spiritual and ethical benefits that accrue from his death. As well as from his resurrection. What does this mean? Well, Paul spells it out in verses 6 and 7. He says, our old self is dead. You see, that language was crucified. He's not talking about something that might happen, is happening. He's talking about something that at a point in time happened. You see, old self, and then later he says, body of sin. What's he mean by that language? He's talking about what we were before coming to Jesus Christ in faith. What we were before the spirit regenerated us. This is shorthand. This is language to describe our lives before being born again. What happened then when we were joined to Christ? When we were crucified together with him. Well, he tells us in verse 6. See the middle part of that. The last part of that. We, were made, we made a definitive break with sin. He says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Your old identity died whenever you became a Christian. It ended. The change that comes from being united to Christ is so radical. It is so significant that the best way to describe it is with the metaphor of death. The old you before you knew God through faith in Jesus, is gone. And now you're a new creation. 
Now, brothers and sisters, when God saved you, you didn't stop being who you are. You didn't go from being Bob to being Joe or from being Laura to being Sue. But in a very real sense, you did enter into a new life. According to the scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, you became a new creation. Your old unconverted self died and made a definitive break with your old unregenerate body that was enslaved to sin. Paul goes on and he says, this happened at the end of verse 6 so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This means that not only does a Christian make a definitive break with sin, but also a Christian is somebody who's been delivered from the slavery of sin. The word slavery there, delivered from slavery, it's, it's the very common word that the Bible uses to speak of a bondservant. Somebody who belongs to a master. And he says that our master used to be sin. And now we have been delivered from that. We've been set free from being slaves. All of us by nature were slaves to sin. In John 8, 34, do you remember Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin? So people might think themselves not to be in bondage to sin outside of Christ. They might dismiss any thought that you would suggest otherwise. But we must remember what the Bible says and understand that Jesus is the one who explains for us reality. Jesus is the one who tells us the truth. And yes, those who sin are by nature slaves from sin. And as slaves to sin, by nature, we can't emancipate ourselves. We don't have anything that is required in order to set ourselves free. But Jesus can set us free. How? Because he conquered sin in his life and his death and resurrection, and we are in him, and in him we are no longer enslaved. As Paul reiterates in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now notice the way that Paul prefaces this explanation of being united with Christ in his death. You see it in verse 6? He starts his explanation with those little words, we know. We know. In other words, these are facts. These are realities. These are realities that every Christian knows or every Christian should know. He's showing how salvation by grace does not lead to a life given over to sin. And so he reminds us of the spiritual realities that are true for every Christian. The implication of these spiritual realities make it impossible for a true Christian to go on living a life that is complacent in sin. Why? Because being united to Christ in his death means that we have made a definitive break with sin and we're no longer slaves to sin. Well, that's the negative side of being in Christ, being united to him. We've been united to him in death. In verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul elaborates the positive side. We've also been united with Christ in life. Because we died with Christ, we will also live with him. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we, also live, we will also live with him. Now, when Paul says if, he's not setting it up as if you know, it might not be true. 
but rather he's using it rhetorically. And so you could just read it like since, since we have died with Christ. Our union with Christ by faith means that we right now live with him. This is not just some future anticipation that Paul has. The language there could lead you to think that if you're not careful in reading it. When he says, we also, we will also live. Now, certainly at our resurrection, that will be the ultimate expression of what we will experience for all of eternity in living with Christ. But Paul is just speaking in that future tense to underscore the inevitability and the certainty of living with Christ that every Christian experiences right now. And this certainty is known to us through faith. You see what he says? We believe that we will also live with him. This isn't idle speculation. This is what John Murray calls the certitude of faith. When Paul exhorts the Christians in the church at Colossae to live like people who know God, he grounds his exhortations in the fact that their lives are intertwined with Christ, that they are in Christ. Let me read to you Colossians 3, 1 through 3. And he starts with exhortations, but then he comes back and he says, here's the reason. This is the foundation. This is the indicative that makes the imperative possible. If then you have been raised with Christ, he says, since you have been, seek the things that are above. There's exhortation where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Why? Here's the foundation. Here's the indicative. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the reason that we pursue holiness. That's the reason that we don't shrink back from God's commandments. That's the reason we don't feel condemned when we see what God requires and what God calls us to be. And and at the end of every day, we have to say we're only unprofitable servants. We've done our duty and we hadn't done that perfectly. No, because we remember what God has done for us and in us in uniting us to Christ. Well, just as our union with Christ and his death has implications for us, so does our union with him and his resurrection. Verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, there are three implications in those words that every Christian needs to recognize and take to heart. In Christ, sin and death have no dominion over us. Why? Because sin and death have no dominion over Christ. Now, sin and dominion did have some, or sin and death did have some dominion over Christ before his resurrection. You see, we we know this because the end of verse 9, he says, Death no longer has dominion over him. So he had to become the sin bearer. He had to experience death as the punishment of sin in order to bring about our salvation. But now that he's risen, he will never die again. There's no more penalty to be paid because he has paid it once and for all. So in him, sin and death have no dominion over us. A second implication In Christ, we have died to sin forever. 
Why? Because as verse 10 says, Christ has died to sin forever. Though he never personally sinned, he lived in a world where sin reigned. And on the cross, he bore sin, both the guilt of sin and the power of sin. And having once and for all time broken the power of sin, he remains dead to sin forever. A third implication. In Christ, we now live for God forever. Why? Because as verse 10 says, Christ lives for God forever. Not that he didn't live for God before his death and resurrection, but now after he's defeated sin, death, and hell, he is living for God in a way that is not at all conditioned by sin. Sin has nothing more to do with him. Now, brothers and sisters, I fear in going through these types of instructions that some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't feel like I've died to sin. I don't think I've done a very good job of walking in newness of life. I need to try harder. If that's the way you're thinking, then I've not communicated clearly. Because that is not what Paul is teaching in this passage. Paul is speaking in the indicative. He is speaking facts. He's speaking reality. And we are called to take God at his word and to believe these facts and let this reality begin to reorient the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about this world. Paul here is not talking about our efforts. He's writing about what's true for every Christian. You can't make these things true or not true. They are true. They're real. Are you trusting Christ as Lord? Is Jesus your Savior? If not, then right now where you are, call out to him and trust him. He will receive you. He will save you. He'll make you right with God. He will forgive every last one of your sins, not because you deserve it, but because he is so good and gracious. He will give you his righteousness and God will credit it to your account and he will regard you as righteous forever for Christ's sake. So trust him. If you are trusting him, then you're a Christian. And everything Paul writes in this passage that we've looked at is true of you. You are in Christ. You've been united with his death. You've been united to him in his resurrection. Which means you have made a definitive break with sin. It means you're no longer a slave to sin. It means that sin and death no longer have dominion over you. It means you have died to sin forever. It means you now live for God forever. These are facts. These are realities. This is truth. If you are in Christ, brother, sister, believe what God says about you. I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson tries to explain this. He writes, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past. It's Christ's past. 
Christian, that's the most important thing about you. It's not what you've done, not what you might do. It's what Jesus has done. You're in him. And your identity now is rooted in him. Your identity is not determined by what other people say is true of you. It's not even determined by what you say is true of you. Your identity is determined by what God says is true of you. And you will either believe it or you won't. But if you don't believe it, just know this. It doesn't change the reality. If you don't see yourself the way that you truly are, then you will find trying to live the Christian life far more complicated than it needs to be. Because the call to live as a Christian is basically a call to live up to what you already are. This is why Paul says what he does in verse 11 as he begins exhortations that God willing we'll look at next time when he writes, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Consider yourselves that way. Why? Is he talking make-believe? Fake it till you make it? Try to convince yourself of something that's not true? No, he's just labored the point. This is true. And because it is true, you need to start realizing it and considering it and thinking about your life in light of this. This is how we fight sin. This is how we pursue holiness. Temptations come. And maybe there's so many habits of giving in to temptation in your life that it just feels natural and normal for you to, to give in again and you just hope and pray God will forgive you. Christian, you're in Christ. He died for your sin and in him you have died to sin. So renounce sin, resist temptation, cry out to God who has taught you the truth about who you are and pray for his spirit to strengthen you in that moment to resist sin. And you look at the way he calls you to live. You look at the positive admonitions to pursue holiness. You think it's beyond me. I can't do that. I've never done that. And you're tempted to just shrink back. No, no, you're a new creation. The spirit of God lives in you. And you're not doing this on your own. You're doing this in Christ. And you've been raised to walk in newness of life. And it may be that you just need to cry out to God, God, I, I feel like a little baby who's just learning to, to toddle. But help me. And by faith, pursue what he says you ought to be and do. You know, I've long been fascinated by butterflies. We have some trees in our backyard, some bushes that are designed to attract butterflies. And sometimes it's just magnificent to look out the window and see all these butterflies, you know, and it's just fascinating. Children, have you ever seen a butterfly break out of its cocoon? It's fascinating. It's amazing. The cycle of life for a butterfly is incredible. Sometimes I've wondered what a butterfly's first flight must be like. What, what, what is it like for a butterfly to stretch his wings and fly for the first time? Now, I know butterflies don't have reasoning like we do. They don't have souls. I understand all that. But imagine for just a moment if you could conceive a butterfly having conscious thoughts. 
I mean, he comes into the world as a caterpillar, right? He spent his whole life crawling over leaves and blades of grass and vegetation, eating everything in sight until the right time when he begins to spin a chrysalis of silk. And that chrysalis is formed. It becomes a cocoon for him. And over the course of a couple of weeks, there's a change that takes place in him. His old caterpillar body dies. And there's a new body that emerges with wings and color. Until the right time when he's stretching those wings and he breaks out of that cocoon and he causes blood to flow through those wings and he flies. Can you imagine? Never flown in his life. Now God wants him to fly. How's that going to work? What God calls him to do, God provides for him to do. And brothers and sisters, that's true of you and me. The life that God calls us to live, by his grace, he has provided everything we need in order to live. Once outside of Christ, you were a slave to sin. You were dead in trespasses and sin. You didn't have the ability to live the Christian life. You were under dominion of sin and death. The call to be holy was impossible. But brothers and sisters, now you are in Christ. He saved you by his grace. Your life is united to him. You are a new creation. And you really are dead to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over you. Yes, it remains in you. But it's no longer king of your life. Rather, you've been made alive to God through Jesus Christ, the true and rightful king. A significant part of living the Christian life well is learning to see yourself for who and what God says you truly are. And who you are is this. You're a blood-bought believer in the living Lord Jesus Christ. You are united to him by faith. And that, more than your age, more than your sex, more than your experience, more than your ethnicity, more than your education, more than any other category you could conceive, that identifies you. That's who you really are. So, live for Christ. Embrace the truth. Pursue the call. Not in your own strength, thinking you're going to make these things happen, but because of what God has done for you in uniting you to his son. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these incredible realities that are revealed in your word. We wouldn't dare let ourselves believe them if they hadn't been revealed. I ask that you would help every child of God here this morning to see that our union with Christ defines our truest identity. And I pray for those who are not in Christ, that today you would call them, speak with a voice that raises the dead, and draw them to Jesus, that they might find in him life everlasting. We pray in his name. Amen.